All right. Well, Richard told me, uh, and, and Dave confirmed it, <laughs> that you guys are doing uh, church history in here. And uh, Richard was telling me last week that you guys, I guess you're in Acts and uh, talking about uh, basically the beginning, I mean, the very, very beginning of the church. So we must have just started. Uh, and, and I heard his lesson a couple weeks ago on 3,000 being added, you know, when Peter preaches, and then 5,000 after that. And, and just the church is exploding right out the gate. And they're all loving one another, giving up their stuff. Uh, for one another, and uh, and then he said you guys talked about the conversion of Paul last week in some sense, and so I think knowing where I was in the college group, and then knowing where he's planning on going, he he asked me if I could maybe teach something from John 17, because that's what we're teaching through in the college group, and and I think he mentioned it last week. Um, I'm putting this together because I didn't get to hear his lesson last week, but I'm assuming he's kind of connecting the dots with how Paul is, is called as a chosen instrument uh, for, to suffer and to basically spread the gospel to, to kings and nations and to the Jews and the Gentiles, basically, all over the place, which is what you're going to see happening uh, in Acts, uh, just the, the gospel being spread throughout the, the known world. Um, and uh, so all that being said, I guess the, the, the connection there is just that this is, this is God's plan. This is God's choosing. God specifically chose Paul. And if you really look at what's going on in Paul's life, I mean, everything about Paul was ordained by God. Even him being a Pharisee, being raised in that system so that he would be what he would call later himself the chief of sinners and, and, and just what he was as a Pharisee and then him persecuting the church, all of that. Even that, though wicked, though God didn't, uh, you know, it wasn't that, that, that God um, like desired uh, for Paul to, to sin and to, to persecute his people. At the same time, he uses that in Paul's life and, and allows it all to happen so that Paul would be exactly who Paul is, so that Paul would do exactly what Paul did, you know? And that's just the unbelievable, majestic, sovereign hand of God, that, that even our lives prior to coming to Christ, prior to being justified, born again, saved, however you want to say it, even that was in his hands and part of his plan. And, uh, and, and what we're going to look at today from John 17 is, uh, you see that, that, that those who are of Christ, those who belong to God, have always belonged to God. And at the same time, there was a time when we belong to the world. We belong to Satan as well. And so, uh, like I said, that sounds confusing. We'll look at it in a second. And uh, this is one of those things we taught in the college group. And it's just, it, it just blows your mind. And at the same time, it just gives you so much confidence and assurance in, in your salvation, in, in, in Him, because all of this is in His sovereign hands, which is so amazing. So open your Bibles to John 17. And, uh, and like I said, we're, gonna, we're only looking at a few verses here today. But I think the stuff we're going to look at uh, is just very, very assuring and very, very comforting. Now, John 17, if you haven't studied before, this is, this is one of the greatest chapters in the Bible. I mean, this is an amazing, amazing chapter. You have God the Son, talking to God the Father. And we've been talking about in the college group for a while now. And, and the things that, that are said here are things that we would have no idea uh, existed, were, were transpiring. We wouldn't understand this. This is, this is God's work, the mind of God. It's God talking to God about God things that we would have no perception of outside of the fact that, that God spoke them and God allowed John to recall these things through the Holy Spirit after his ascension. And John wrote down this intimate conversation with Jesus Christ and his Father. And in doing so, it gives us insight into the, the plan and the mind and the will of God in things that we just, again, wouldn't comprehend this side of heaven. And I think for all eternity, we'll be worshiping and glorifying him because of just stuff like this that we have no idea that he's doing. It's just his, his, his love and his his greatness is just uh, just beyond our comprehension. So Jesus is interceding here. He's praying. He's praying for the, uh, his own glory. He's praying for what's about to happen at the cross. He's praying for the disciples that are right there with him. He's, he's also going to pray for the future believers, which would, I mean, be you and I, those who believe through their testimony, the, the generations to come. And, and he prays uh, for them all, for all of us, uh, to be together with him and to be one. Uh, you're gonna, if you look at John 17, you see the glory of Christ. You see the glory of what he does at the cross, the salvation of sinners. It's just a lot here. So again, we're just jumping right in the middle of all this stuff. And this is coming on the tail end of what they call a, the upper room discourse. It's, it's Jesus with the 11 disciples after Judas left to betray him in, in that upper room where they did the Lord's Supper and, and he sp- washed their feet and he speaks to them. And the stuff that, that preceded this is, is amazing too. So it's just an intimate, intimate, intimate time between Jesus and the 11 
and Jesus and the Father. And so we're just kind of, like I said, diving right in here. But I think what we're going to see today is uh, just the, that, that love of God, uh, that, that desire of Christ for us to be with him, to be forever united to him, to have an intimate relationship with him, for us to see his love and to see his glory and to be a part of that forever. When, when you just start looking at that, you just see that, that your salvation, uh, your life, your eternal life, all of those things are in his hands. And that, that is where the assurance of our faith is. Uh, you can read First John and you see the assurance of your faith comes through as you examine your life, whether or not you love one another, whether or not you obey his word, submit to his word, uh, whether or not we um, uh, uh, serve and, and, and sacrifice ourselves. I mean, there's a lot of things that you can look at in First John that are actions that we do. It's part of kind of the, the man's side of salvation. So you can examine yourself and see, am I in the faith? But that is all founded on the fact that all those who are his are in the faith. And all those who are his, he will produce those things in them. And I think that's where we're getting at with this stuff. This is just just good, good stuff that just gives us that eternal security. Uh, and, and it's founded upon his sovereignty. Like I said, it doesn't alleviate or invalidate the fact that we have commands to follow, commands to believe, commands to repent, those sort of things, to put on Christ, to put off unrighteousness, all that stuff. But that stuff is, that stuff is all, in a sense, almost secondary to the fact that he will cause in all of his children, he will cause us to believe, he will cause us to love, he will cause us to follow, he will cause us to persevere to the end, because that's what he does with all of his children, and he doesn't miss any of them. He doesn't lose any of them, he doesn't miss any of them, he, he holds all of us, and that's what's wonderful about this whole thing. So let's read real quick. We're going to, like I said, we'll, we'll, let's read 1 through 12, and we're really going to look at 6 through 8, but just to get the context of what's going on here. So Jesus has, they've left the upper room. They're probably walking through Jerusalem at this point. They're on their way to Gethsemane. And it says in verse, uh, John 17, verse 1, Jesus spoke these things, and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. That's speaking specifically of the cross. The time for the cross has come. Glorify your son, that the son may glorify you. He says, even as you have given him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you, before the world was. I have manifested your name to the men you gave me out of the world. They were yours, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they have come to know that everything you have given me is from you. For the words which you gave me, I have given to them, and they received them, and truly understood that I came forth from you, and they believe that you sent me. I ask on their behalf. I do not ask on behalf of the world, but... Of those whom you have given me, for they are yours. And all things that are mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I have been glorified in them. I am no longer in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world, and I come to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, the name that you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I was keeping them in your name which you have given me, and I have guarded them, so not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, so that scriptures would be fulfilled. Like I said, there's a ton here. We see what eternal life looks like. We see that, that, that Jesus Christ has authority given to him by God now to give life. I mean, you see earlier in the uh, context that, that he also has the authority to judge. This, this is power. This is uh, uh, governing authority that God gives to the Son to do the work of God. Not that, that Christ lacked this authority prior, but that this is a, a gift from the Father, and this is part of Christ's role to give eternal life. And so, you know, one thing we've been talking about in the youth is if you want eternal life, you must go to Christ. There's no other way. That's why religion and works righteousness and any other thing that you can think of doesn't suffice because only Christ has life. And the only way to have life is to run to Jesus Christ. He's the only one that can give it, the only one that has authority to give it. We can't do it on our own. No one else has that authority. But what's neat about that is though he's the one that has the authority, at the same time, it's God the Father that governs all of that. And God the Father gives to the Son all of those who will have eternal life. And the Son makes sure that all of them have eternal life. And he gives them back to the Father 
sanctified and glorified, perfect and complete, because that's his work. That's his job. That's part of what Jesus Christ does. And if you look at these verses, uh, especially in, in verse 6 through 8, you have it five times. And if you look at the kind of the, the, the context after that, we have eight times in seven verses uh, this, this verb to give. This is obviously the emphasis of this little section here. That, that uh, you got the Father giving to uh, uh, Jesus the 11 disciples three times. You got the Father giving everything to Jesus one time. You got the Father giving his words to Jesus one time. You got the Father giving his name to Jesus twice. And then you got Jesus giving the Father's word to the 11 once. And so obviously this, this word to give is, is an emphasis. And this giving uh, is, is, is part of, of what we're going to look at today. It's a grace gift. It's wrapped up in the gracious giving of the Father to the Son and the Son to the Father. And what's neat is we're wrapped up in this. Specifically, this is talking of the 11 in the immediate context, but this applies to all believers. And again, he's actually going to wrap all believers into the whole story very soon. But if you really look at it, it's so easy for us to look at our salvation and think it's about us. And we're not saying it's not. It's not that God does love us. He sent his own Son. He loved the world. He loves his children. It is about us in some capacity. But at the same time, we are actually wrapped up in this giving between the Father and the Son and the Son and the Father. The gift that they give is the Holy Spirit, and we're wrapped up in this Trinitarian love gifting to one another. Isn't that crazy? That's what's so neat about it. Your salvation is so much bigger and beyond just you. You know what I mean? We get so self-consumed and focused on our own selves, and we think we can sin too much and lose our salvation, or we're not good enough to have salvation. And it's just like, that's the stuff, that's the stuff that has to go. And we have to understand if we need salvation, we run to Christ. And if we run to Christ, we're part of this whole grace gifting that, that, that God gives us to the Son as love gifts, that the Son transforms, sanctifies, makes us like Himself and gives us back to the Father in His love to glorify the Father, that the Father, and we'll talk about this soon too, gives us back to the Son in the marriage of the Lamb and we're forever united with Him, as you read in Revelation 19. And in the very end, 1 Corinthians 15, the Son gives all back to the Father, so that the Father is all in all, and all glory and all honor and all praise go to the Father. And He even Himself submits to the Father, so the Father's everything. And we're wrapped up in that. That's the story. That's what we're part of. And so they're doing this thing. God's doing this thing and, and just expressing his love because he is love. And he, he inserts us into that. And we're part of the love of God and the love of Christ. And he gifts us with his Holy Spirit. And that is just what is amazing. We're wrapped up in this gracious giving of God. And we're part of this love. And it's a display of God's love, even our salvation. And, and, and that's to glorify his son. So... Like I said, we're just going to look at the first six verses here. But in these first six verses, there's a few things we want to just see uh, that, that, that are very important and, like, again, give us great assurance. First thing is that Jesus Christ revealed God's character visibly. And that's very important. He visibly revealed the character of God. That's what he's talking about in verse 6 where he says, I have manifested your name to the men you gave me out of the world. They were yours and you gave them to me and they kept your word. Jesus Christ revealed God's character visibly. When he says, I've manifested your name, that word manifest, it just means to, it's used a lot of, I mean, the main, the main translation is to manifest or to appear. But if you look at other contexts, you've got to get a, a broader understanding of like what this word entails. But it means to reveal, to demonstrate, to disclose, to be made visible or to be made evident. And that's what he's doing. He, he is making evident, making visible, disclosing, uh, having to appear and manifest the, the name of God. And the name of God, if you look uh, it, how the Bible uses that all the time, when it talks about the name of God, it's talking about his character. It's what comes with God. I mean, we understand that even in, in our context as people. You know, somebody says your name and uh, in, in, in what you are, your, your name represents what you are. You know, if they say Brian Irby, well then what I am is, is part of who Brian Irby is. Does that make sense? Your name is kind of like uh, your character represents, or your name represents your character. And so we see this a lot of times in the Bible. Um, uh, uh, and uh, so basically Jesus came to disclose the nature and the character of God, to make visible who God is. And he does it in human form so that we can understand that. The, the, the commands in the Bible always stay the same. In the Old Testament, God called Israel to be holy just as I am holy, just like he does in First or Second Peter. I can't remember which one it was. Uh, we see this, this uh, admonition always throughout Scripture to, to imitate his character, to be like God. I mean, he says explicitly in Ephesians 1 to imitate God and to walk in love as Christ loves. But prior to God being made a man, 
and living a life so that we can see what a human looks like when he fully glorifies God, fully submits to God, fully loves others more than himself, fully loves God with all of his heart, mind, soul, and strength. Until that, it was almost a concept that was understood but not seen. Does that make sense? And so in the Old Testament, I mean, the, the, the command was still there. There was no, there was, you know, it didn't, it didn't lessen it at all. But, but no person had actually seen that. You see, you see snippets of it in different men's character. David had very God-like characteristics, Christ-like characteristics in the way that he, he submitted to God's word. He was patient, waiting for, you know, instead of uh, uh, fighting against Saul and taking his, I mean, I, I can get into a bunch of rabbit trails here, but you see God's character in Abraham and in Moses and in David, and you can get snippets of what it looks like to, to follow him, to, uh, to walk in, in uh, the, the nature, the character of who God is, but then Christ comes and appears and manifests that perfectly. So that, and, and we wouldn't even know probably the aspects of David, Moses, Abraham's lives that were Christ-like, if you want to say it that way, until we compare them to Christ and we see those things. And the same thing in us. And so Christ came and he manifests or demonstrated God's character perfectly. Well, we see the Bible say this uh, a few times. You know, Colossians 1, verses 15 and 19 it talks about Jesus. He, in Colossians 1.15, is the image of the invisible God. I mean, I think it's a very plain way to say it. Jesus Christ is the image of God. So you want to know what God is like? Look at Christ. He's the image of God. He goes on in verse 19 to say, It was the Father's good pleasure for the fullness, for the Father's fullness to dwell in Him, in Christ. So the fullness of God dwelled in Jesus Christ. And he is the image of God. Those are two just different ways of saying that Jesus Christ manifests who God is perfectly. Uh, in Hebrews 1.3, you see uh, the author of Hebrews say the same sort of thing. In Hebrews 1.3, it says, He, Jesus Christ, is the radiance of his, the Father's, glory and the exact representation of his nature. I mean, that's very, again, very, very plainly said. He's the image of God. Uh, the fullness of God dwelled in him. He is the radiance of God's glory. And he's the exact representation of God's nature. So that's who Christ is. Christ came and made that visible. We would not understand it the way we understand it now apart from Christ. doesn't mean that the Old Testament saints didn't understand it, but now we see it in a way. It was fully manifest for us in the, nat- in the, in the person of Christ. And so... Jesus says he revealed God's name, he revealed God's character to the men that God gave him. So the second thing we want to see here is this, that God gives all of his children to Christ. This is how God works. Again, we we wouldn't know this except for we have things in Scripture that show us the, the, the plans and the ways of God. Not much, but here's one of them. He says, you gave them to me. Uh, he says it twice, actually. He says that you gave them to me, they were uh, out of the world, and then he says you, they were yours and you gave them to me. Again, so three times we have this word give, to be freely given to. Um, I, I, when I read this, this is one of those things where I was just like, I just want to make sure that I'm seeing this right, because it looks like, I mean, the way it's written, that, that they, were, they were yours. They were already belonging to God, and at the same time, they were in the world because he gives them to them out of the world. But then he says, but they were yours. They belonged to him, and you gave them to me. So it sounds like, we belong to God prior to salvation, even while we were in the world system. And we know, we'll talk about that in a second, uh, we were fully in the world, I mean, because he gave it to us out of the world, but we already belong to God. And, and uh, you know, that's just one of those concepts that, again, with our little logical pea brain minds, we're like, wait a second, that just seems like a contradiction. I mean, is this true? But when you just step back and you let God be God, there's a lot of scripture that support both things. We belong to him prior to being saved. And at the same time, we fully were immersed in and belonging to the world, submitting to Satan and enslaved in our sins and everything else. But God made sure that we, those who are his, were given to Christ. Christ makes sure, once given to him, he does exactly what God wants him to do so that we, we will be made like him. I was reading, there's a couple of um, commentators that I read that I thought were, just said it really well. D.A. Carson says, The ones uh, for whom Jesus prays here then antecedently belong to God who took them out of the world and gave them to the Son who manifests God's name to them. In other words, they belong to God prior to basically what we would say being born again or prior to believing. Because, and I'm about to give it away, but I'll tell you about it in a second. The other thing, MacArthur said it this way too. Uh, He said, Christ's statement that they were yours and you gave them to me is a forceful affirmation that even before their conversion, the disciples belonged to God. 
Earlier in the Gospel of John, the Lord declared, All that the Father gives to me will come to me, and the ones who come to me I will certainly not cast out. So, those that the Father gives to Jesus Christ will all come. And we'll talk more about that in a second, too. Every single one of them. All of them will hear his voice. None of them will miss him. And he won't miss any of them. You know, when <coughs> people talk about the, the proverbial guy that's on the island out in the middle of the Pacific that no one ever shares the gospel with, would that guy go to hell? It's like that guy doesn't exist. If that guy is a child of God, God will make sure that someone gets him the news of Christ because he doesn't miss any of his people. Does that make sense? God makes sure that all of his children come to him. So that person won't end up on that island. There's no way for a child of God to end up on that island to be missed by the Father. As if, as if the Pacific Ocean is too far for God to reach to grab one of his children. You know what I mean? Again, honestly, the, 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 even though it's, a, it's, it's good to talk about, to understand the character of God, I mean, to think that God's, you know, like... Constrained by the Pacific Ocean to get a person. I mean, it's just like it just belittles God. Really, God makes sure He gets all of His children. He says they were yours, and you gave them to me. And this uh, they were yours. What's neat about this is in the imperfect. It's in the past, but it means that they were continually yours, even in the past. I think this is speaking prior to salvation. Even in the past, they were already yours. Again, this that's just what's so neat about this whole thing. And He says, and you freely gave them to me. Jesus Christ uh, is, is given by God, all of God's children, and God only entrusts his children to Christ because Christ is the only one that can do the things that God wants to happen to his children, snatch them from the hands of Satan, glorify them, and give them back to him. In Revelation 13.8 and 17.8, you see God talking. Now, now, this is in context of talking about the, those who are following the Antichrist and those who will be judged during the tribulation because they take the mark of the beast and all of that. But the thing is, is the only reason they follow the Antichrist is because of what he says in these verses. Because he says his children have their names written from the foundation of the world in the Lamb's book of life, who has been slain. So, all those who have their name written in his book and their names were written in the Lamb's book of life before the foundation of the world will in no way whatsoever listen to, follow, or believe the Antichrist. They won't take the mark of the beast. They will die during the tribulation for Christ. And that's what's so neat about it. It's, it's only those whose names were not already written that are fooled by, by the, the things that happen in the end. But the point of those verses is to show you that even these people at the very end of history already were written in his book prior to the beginning of history. Isn't that cool? They were his to begin with. And so when they're born, even if they're born in the tribulation, even if they're born in the time that wickedness reigns on earth in a way that we've never comprehended before, even that, even that will not cause them to follow, or you could say even that will not stop God from grabbing them. And that's what's so neat about it. In Colossians 3, 3 through 4, it talks about us presently. It says, our life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ is revealed, we will be revealed with him in glory. There's two things I think you can get from that verse. One is, is right now we're not seen for what we truly are, you know? We, we look like everyone else, other than our, our good works and, and the, 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 the way that we live our lives, right? The love and the, those sort of things that John talks about. But we're hidden with Christ. But we've always been hidden. We've always been. Even when we were in the world system, even when we were children of Satan during that time, we still, in some capacity, were hidden, and, and, and protected and still belong to God. The way that I think about this, I told the college kids this, and this is kind of the way that, that, that I think about it. Like if, and, uh, and I told them I hate to use my daughters in an analogy where they go to jail, but it, 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 I think it's going to work. So, so it, you know, if my daughters are mine, right? They belong to me. They're my children. But if they did something at some point where they had to go to jail, during that time they would, they would not belong to me, Right? And during that time, they would still, well, they would still belong to me in the sense they're my daughters, but they would belong to the state. They would be submissive to the state. They would be under the state's authority. They'd have to stay where the, they tell them to stay and do what they tell them to do. I have no authority at that point in their life. They're stuck. They're behind bars. They're imprisoned. But if I paid their bail or if I got them out or if they served their time and got out, well, they're, they're mine again right? And they can come to me. And so, it, but it's not like during the time they were in jail, they did not belong to me in the sense they were no longer my daughters. They were mine to begin with. They were mine there and they were mine at the end. But during that time, they were not mine. Does that make sense? And I think that's, again, I know the analogy falls short in, in probably a lot of ways, but that helped me to kind of grasp what we are in Christ. We belong to God to begin with. 
and, and, and in jail or in sin under the authority and the governing power of Satan, we still belong to him, though at the same time we happily belong to Satan. But he makes sure that every single one of us get out of that and that we are his forever. And we never, ever return to that. And that's the love of God. And so the next point is all of God's children were once part of the world. We can't deny that. Belonging to God prior to that doesn't override the fact that we did belong to the world. Ephesians 2, I think, is a great place to go for that. Because Ephesians 2 is talking to believers. These are believing, born-again Christians in Ephesus. And he says, you were once, prior to your salvation, dead in your trespasses and sin. So you were dead. And he says, uh, in that, uh, basically separated from God, in which you formerly walked according to the course of the world. So in other words, you lived, you lived in submission to the, 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 the rule or the authority, the rules of the world, the, the, the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, which is Satan. So we lived underneath uh, the authority and the rule of Satan, and we were happily doing that. That's how we lived our lives. Uh, he is the, the spirit now working in the sons of disobedience. So the, the one who who currently works in those who are disobedient to God, who are apart from God, we were once part of. And so, again, it doesn't negate the fact that we were part of that. It says, among them we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and the mind. And by nature, we were children of wrath. So, again, part of what is true is, though we belong to God, at the same time, there was a time when we were children that, that, that were under the wrath of God because of our sin belonging to Satan's authority, Satan's governing system. And it says, even as the rest, we were like them. We, we, we are sinners. So it's, it's both. Um, Romans 3 talks about none being righteous, not one. No one understands. And all have turned aside. They've all become useless. No one does God good, not even one. And again, we were part of that. So, so it, it's, it's both. We belong to God, but we were in that place. And then John 15, 19, Jesus says, I chose you, speaking to those 11 disciples, he says, I chose you out of the world. So again, that's just what's neat about it. I feel like it's like we belong to him, but we were in prison with sin and under Satan's authority, and Christ chooses us out of that because all those who belong to him, he does not lose any of them. And that's just the, the, the wonderful plan of God. And that's what God did with Paul in Acts, right? I mean, that's what Paul was. Paul would always have been Paul. There's no way that Paul could not be Paul because God ordained Paul before the foundation of the world to do exactly what Paul did, to cause the church to, be, to, to flourish and to spread throughout the, the known world at the time. But Paul still, during the time prior to his being born again, meeting Jesus on the road to Damascus and all that stuff, I mean, he was, he was fully immersed in Satan's plan. He was leading the attack against the people of God. You know, he would have been like a, a, a general in Satan's army, you know what I mean? Fighting the church. But again, that's, that was even that God ordained so that Paul would be exactly who Paul was on the, on the back end. You know, and Paul would look at that and say, I am the worst of all. I am a, uh, an apostle that's not even fit to be with the rest of them. And I'm the chief of sinners. And, and, and uh, he, would, he would see all that stuff. So all that being said, that's the, the wonderful security that we have in Christ uh, and, and knowing that God doesn't lose any of his children. Now, here's, here's what's neat, and this is something that you got to look at here too. So there's a result. There's a result in all of our lives if we are given to Christ by God. If we belong to God and we are given to Christ, like this talks about, there's results that happen. And, and this is the, the first John stuff. This is where we examine ourselves. And here's kind of the, the, the divine side of it. You know, in First John, it'll say, we know that we... Uh, know him, you know, if we obey his word or if we keep his commandments, you know, and he'll say, all those who belong to him love one another. If you do not love one another, you do not belong to him, you know, so it's like a lot of these kind of, you know, you examine your life, you can check out, like, does that look like me? I need to change. Does that look like me? I need to change. Does that look like me? You know, that's what 1 John is all about. But here's the the foundation of 1 John. The reason 1 John works and the reason that, that John can write what he says to the churches in 1 John is because of what happens right here. In John 17, he says, you gave them to me and they have all kept your word. All right. The reason we keep his word and the reason we obey his word, submit to his word, all those things is because that is what Christ assures will happen to all of those that are given to him. That's why you keep his word. That's why you do good works. Isn't that crazy? Your good works are guaranteed 
Because like Ephesians 2 says, they were, they were laid out before the foundation of the world. They were already there. They were made for you to walk in them. But even that walking in them is still something that Christ makes sure that you do. He's the one causing you to walk in them. He's the one that laid them out. He's the one that shows you what they are. He's the one that causes you to perceive that it's good. And it's, it's all his work. He says, those you've given to me, they have kept your word. And again, this is an ongoing past proof. The result of being given to Jesus Christ is that all of his children will keep his word. That's part of what we do. That's a new covenant promise in the Old Testament. He says, I'll give you my spirit and I will cause you to walk in my statutes. I will cause you to obey my commandments. Isn't that crazy? I mean, we're caused to do that. You can look at your life and see how, how often you fail to do that. But the ability to do that and the causing behind that, uh, uh, submitting to him and obeying him, is, is given by Christ because that's what happens in his children. In John eight fifty one, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. If you take God out of that, you would read that as works righteousness, right? If you'll just keep his word, you will have eternal life. But that's not, a, that's not something that is, is guaranteed by you. The guarantee of that statement is based on God. Because God will make sure that all of his children keep his word. So truly, truly, Jesus can say, anyone who keeps my word will have eternal life. Because the keeping the word is the result. Keeping the word is the result of the fact that they are given to me. And they're mine. And that's why they keep the word. In John 3.36, he says, and this is a good way for our minds to see this. He says, he who believes in the Son has eternal life, right? So tell me, who do you think would not have eternal life. If it's those who believe have eternal life, what do you think the negative statement would be? Who does not have life? You would think it's those who don't believe. But look at how he states it. He says, He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. So in God's mind, obedience and belief are hand in hand. Even so much that those who do not believe uh, or those who do not obey obviously are those who do not believe and those will not receive life. Because anyone who believes will obey. Again, not because of you and your ability to obey, but because that's just how God works. If you believe, it's because you've been given to the Son. And He causes that belief, and He'll also cause obedience, so that all those who believe obey. In John 14, He says it the same way. He says, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And my Father will love him, and we will come and make our abode with him. Isn't that crazy? If someone loves me, they will keep my word. And we will come and we will dwell with them. Now, again, you could read that as if that has something to do with you. But it actually has to do with him. He says, he who does not uh, love me does not keep my word. And the words you have is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. In other words, this is what the Father says. Jesus is just saying, I'm repeating what God says. So what's needed about that is, uh, and if you keep reading the context there, if, if we love him, we'll obey him. And, and he actually goes on to say, and we know that he loves us if we obey him. Any of us, I remember before I was a believer, I would always say I love God. But I, I mean, I did not live like it at all. I had a life that would say the exact opposite. But you, you know, I grew up in the South, like some of you guys, and everybody in the South loves God, right? You can drink, cheat on your wife, cuss and smoke, or whatever you want to do, but you always love God. You know? and, and so we, in our, our minds, we think we can pull that off, but God says the opposite, right? He says, those who love me, obey me. But at the same time, What's neat is, is by your obedience and by your submission, you actually know that he loves you. You know, we always assume God loves us. And God loves the world, for sure. There is a love that God has even for those who are not his. But there's an intimate love that God only has for his children. And God does not love you like that if you're not his child. And so you know that God loves you like that if you obey him. Because he loves his children, and all of his children obey. Isn't that neat? And yeah, yeah, yeah. I think so. Yeah, I think so. And I think I think part of part of that, you know, him manifesting himself in that way. Yeah, yeah. Well, and you got to think about this. There, he, he manifests God's character and nature and everything else to many people who did not believe, did not see it, did not follow. You know what I mean? Just the fact that he manifests God's character does not necessitate that all see that, but his children do. And that causes his children to, to walk in love as he loved and to be loved by him. You know what I mean? But for those outside of that, I mean, so that's what uh, 1 Corinthians 2 talks about. You know, you read the same words here. 
But for those who don't have the Spirit of God, this stuff is spiritually appraised. They can't understand it. First Corinthians 1 talks about it. You know, to the natural man, this is foolishness. But for those who are being saved, this is the power of God. At the very end, it says we have the mind of Christ. We can understand this stuff because we, we have his mind because his spirit is within us, interpreting spiritual words that he has given so that we, the children of God, could, could uh, be yeah, just enveloped or immersed in that love that God has for us. So, but again, that's a, just a gift. All of that, none of that comes back down to you know, us in any way performing on our own or some reason we came to him. It's, it's, this is all we belong in this whole giving to the son and the son giving to the father and that's what he causes in us, which is actually the next point. He says, he says they, ha- uh, they have come to know that everything you've given me is from you. I mean, that's another result of being given to Christ. If you're given to Christ, then you will come to know, just like the 11, that everything, everything that Christ is and has and does has all been given to him by the Father. He's completely connected to God. They are one. And we know that and we believe that. And again, it goes back to what I just mentioned a second ago. There was many people that saw the exact same miracles, heard the exact same words, watched Jesus do all the things the 11 saw, and their end assessment is this guy is from Satan. This guy is from Beelzebul. This, is, this guy is empowered by satanic forces. They, they saw the same stuff and interpreted it the complete opposite of what it was. But those who believed, those were the ones that God had given to him. And they saw it, and they said, everything about this man is completely and fully from God. And even understood that he himself was God. Uh, you see this even, even before this time in the, as, as the disciples walked with Christ. They, they, they know all he is is from God. All, they call him the Son of Man, the Messiah, the Christ. They equate him to be God. Um, uh, they, they, they know the miracles, the words. Everything he is comes from God. I love John 6. You know, John 6 is the whole place where, you know, he just fed the 5,000 and all the people come. They want more bread and they're begging him for bread. And, and he keeps trying to tell them, I'm, I'm here not to give you just physical bread. You need me, you know? And, he, and, he, and they just keep arguing to the point that he's like, you must eat my flesh and drink my blood. You know, they just won't get it. And, they, and he gets to the point where he's like, you must consume me. You don't need bread. And he just keeps telling them, believe what I'm saying. And, and by the very end, everyone leaves. It says many of the disciples left at that point. And, and, and it looks like only the 12 were left. And he looks around and he, he says to the 12, you, you do not want to go away also, do you? And Simon Peter answered, and, and here's what I think, this whole understanding everything is from him, this is what we say as Christians. He talks to Peter, he says, you want to go away too? And he says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. I mean, I think, I think it was just as hard to hear what he, he was saying to the 12. But even when it's hard, even when it's dark, even when you don't fully comprehend and you don't know why things are happening the way they're happening, you don't know why the whole mass has just left him, and you don't know why he said what he just said, you can't go anywhere else. Because this guy is from God, and you know that he has the words of eternal life. And we get in that place, right? There's many times where we just don't know why, and we just don't know where we're going in this present age, but we know that he has eternal life, and we know he's from God, and we know everything about is from God, so where in the world else could we go? I think that's what Peter's saying there. And that's what a believer says. And that's because they've been given to Christ. Didn't you say before that this is a hard teaching? Yeah. yeah. It says this is, a, this is a hard teaching. How can any of and that's, the, that's what the, the disciples say as they leave. Yeah. Who, can, who can submit to this? And, and Peter actually goes on to say, We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One from God. You're that one. The one that, that we've been looking, at, looking for since Adam and Eve. So that's part of this whole understanding He's from God. That's what believers do. In Matthew 16, I think is another good place because you see the distinction between what people think he is and what he truly is. Uh, they come to the district of Caesarea Philippi and he's asking the disciples, who do the, who do the people say the Son of Man is? You know, so again, I think this is an intimate setting. He's talking to his, his 12 and he's like, who do, who do people say I am? And, and they say to him, well, some say you're John the Baptist. Others think you're Elijah. Others think you're Jeremiah or maybe one of the prophets. There's a lot of interpretations of who Christ is. It's no different today, right? You just ask anybody, who is Jesus Christ? You would come up with a multitude of answers. Everything from a good teacher to the most wicked man that ever walked the planet, right? But, but he says then, he says, Simon Peter, or, or he says, who, who do you say I am? And Simon Peter answered him and said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus doesn't look at him and go, you nailed it, Peter. By your wit and your understanding, you've got that. He says, 
Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you. My Father who is in heaven has revealed this. Isn't that neat? I mean, if we believe, that's because we've been given to Christ. And the fa- our Father who is in heaven has caused us to believe. And Christ, who we've been given to, is the one that gives us his word and makes sure that we receive it, that we believe it, we understand it. Isn't that awesome? It's, it's, it's just, that it's all, all glory goes to him. If you believe, that's because it's given to you. And that's because of his love. And he doesn't miss any of his children. Where else can we go? He is the Christ. He is the Son of God. He is the Holy One of God. And we know that because that's given to us. I love Matthew 13. He tells the disciples, you know, he's talking to parables. He says, blessed are your eyes because they see and your ears because they hear. We're blessed. You are blessed by God if you read his word and you see and you hear. You believe. You know this is true. Because that's a gift that only his children have. But it's guaranteed because of the hands of Jesus Christ. Finally, the last part is uh, that those who are given to Jesus, they receive, they understand, they believe God or they believe his word. There's three results that, that occur here. At the very end, he says, the words you gave to me, I've given to them. They've received them. They've truly understood that I came forth from you and they believe that you sent me. Again, all these things are accomplished facts in their, in their life. This is, this is, we would call it past tense. It's, it's not that these, these things will happen eventually in the disciples. This is just the result of them being given to Jesus. They, were, they belonged to God, he gave them to him, and here's what Jesus did with them. He says, they res- received your word. It means they took it upon themselves. They, they came to believe in it. They were married to it. They, were, they, they, they got it. And they're, they're now linked to it. They receive it. Uh, we see this a lot of times in the New Testament. In Thessalonians 2.13, it says, we, uh, Paul says, I, I constantly thank God that when you, talking to the Thessalonians, received the word of God, uh, which you heard from us, Look at this. You accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God. And it also performs its work in you who believe. So that's what Christians do. When we hear the word, when we're in here this morning, this is why it's so funny when people say, oh, that was such a good sermon. I'm so thankful for that. It, it, you know, there's a part of you that's like, oh, no, 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 not me, not me. That's all God. And it is. But at the same time, I feel the same way because it's the same word that's washing over me. And even when it comes out of my lips, it's coming right back into my heart and I'm receiving it with you because when we talk about the word of God and we receive it, we know this is God's word and it's always edifying for us. It's always uplifting. Whether you're hearing it with your ears or whether you're speaking it with your mouth, it's, it's always edifying when we hear his word given to us. That's what his children do. We always receive it and we want more of it. We're never satisfied with whatever bit of the word we have. That's what causes us to read his word. That's what causes us to have our, our, our times together and to have Bible studies and to pray together and to talk together about Christ. We love him and we love his word. In Acts 2.41, which you guys just read through, it says those who have received his word that day when Peter spoke were baptized and they were added 3,000 souls to the church that day. Those people heard the word come out of Peter's mouth and they received it. They were married to it. They knew this was God's word. Some of the same ones that were there when he was crucified 50 days later, received the word and were baptized and born again. Isn't that crazy? But again, you know, 50 days earlier, they were happily under Satan's rule and authority. But when God decided it's time, they received. So, you know, if you look at it historically, if you look at it time-wise, there was a time when they didn't believe, then there was a time they received, and they were transformed, born again, made new, changed, made like Christ. But if you look at it from God's perspective, they always belonged to him. He just wanted them to receive it at that point. And that's just neat. That's how God works. The Bereans did the same thing. They received the words and examined them with eagerness. I've heard people say that a lot. You know, they're like, oh, I got to be a Berean, you know, examine the scripture. But the thing is, is you can't be a Berean if you don't receive it first, right? You can't examine the scripture on your own. In fact, I mean, some of the, some of the best critical commentaries and a lot of the stuff that's written about the Bible is written by unbelievers, they have examined it very well. They know all the nuances of the Greek and the Hebrew, and they can tell you what the Greek and the Hebrew mean better than I can, but they have not yet received it. Therefore, it has no power in their life, and they don't understand the God whom they're interpreting his own words. You know, To be a Berean, you have to receive the word first before you can then examine it and understand it. Uh, another thing is they, uh, they truly understood. He says, they truly understood that I came forth from you. Uh, we see this a lot of times too. First John 2, 3, by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. This is the same word. They, we understand that we have come to understand him if we keep his commandments. Because those, all those who understand him, who know him, uh, will obey him. In Galatians 4.9, it says uh, that you have come to know or rather be known by God. 
that's just another link there that I want you to see that, that those who are given to Christ, they truly understand that he is from God. But then on our side, part of that assurance is if we truly understand that he is from God, then we also know that we are known by God. And we're not in that group that one day will stand there at judgment and say, I perform works in your name, did miracles in your name, I've done all this for you. And he says, I don't know you. Those who know him are those who obey his word and those who love others. Those who know him understand that he is the Christ. And those who know him are also, praise God, known by him. And that's what matters. Anyone can say, I know God. But what we want to make sure is that God knows us, right? And those who are given to Christ are known by God. Finally, he says, they believed. They believed. He says, they believe that you sent me. Part of being given to God and him giving us, uh, given to Christ and, and him giving us the words, we believe that God sent Jesus Christ. And again, you just have, that's, that's what John is all about. I can't remember, I, I was, when I was teaching this in the college, I think it's like 89 times in, in John, you got this word, believe, 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 believe. And many times it's linked to his words. Lots of people are believing in him, but they're believing him to be what they want him to be. He's a bread maker. He can make wine. He can raise people from the dead. He can do miracles. And they believe him to be John the Baptist or a prophet or Jeremiah or, you know, whoever they want him to be. But he keeps telling them, believe the words that you hear me speak. Because what he's saying about himself, if you read it, he is God. He is the Messiah. He is the judge. And he is the eternal life giver. He is not John the Baptist, nor Elijah, nor a prophet, nor any other thing that you want him to be. You must believe that God sent him, and he is who he says he is. And again, you have that all throughout John. The disciples in John 2.11 believed in him. In John 2.22, they remembered what he had said, and they believed the scripture, the word that Jesus had spoken. In John 5.24, he says, He who hears my word and believes has eternal life. So on our side, we must believe. It's a command, believe in him. But on his side, all of his children will believe. They will all believe. Because they belong to God and God gave them to the Son and the Son makes sure that they believe. And He puts His Spirit within them to cause them to believe. And then through that belief, He causes them to become more like Him and then glorifies us together with the Son. That's just the, the eternal security of our salvation. Is all, we're wrapped up in, 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 in Christ. Your belief, your receiving, your understanding, your submitting, your obeying, your following, your love, all those things that we look at our lives and we, and we, we strive for, even that stuff is founded on the fact that God causes those things in all of his children. He does it through equipping them with his Holy Spirit so that he is within them and he will act through them because that's his nature and his character. He does it by giving them to Christ and Christ makes sure these things happen to them. You know, and, and, and what's neat about this is we're talking about an intercessory prayer of Christ. This is what Christ does right now. Romans 8 says, he intercedes in heaven for the saints and he who is in heaven knows the mind of the Spirit and he informs the Spirit within us to pray in ways that we would not comprehend so that his will would be done both in our lives and he would use our lives to perform his will. So you got to think, again, even, even presently, we're just wrapped up in this Trinitarian love and in this sovereign plan of God. God the Father's will will always be done. Romans 8, again, he works all things out for the good of those who love him, those who are called by his name. And the good that he's talking about there, he goes on to describe, he, he causes us to be conformed to the image of his Son to be made in his likeness, to be glorified. That's the Father's will. That's what God will cause. And, and, and Christ knows the mind of God. So Christ intercedes for us that that would be happening in our lives, that we would be sanctified, that we would be transformed, that we would be made like him, and that we would glorify God, and we would be glorified together with him. And then he informs the Spirit within us to do those works and to cause us to walk in that way, to cause us to be sanctified, to cause us to want to follow him, to love others and all those things. And so through the Son's prayers and the Holy Spirit's work and God the Father's plans, we cannot not do those things. We will love and we will obey. We will submit. We will sacrifice our time and our efforts and our lives because that's what his children do. And we're safely in his hands. John 10, 27 through 30, he says, My sheep hear my voice. I know them and they all follow me. And I will give eternal life to them. These are promises from his lips, not based on you or me. And they will never perish. And look at this. No one will snatch them out of my hand. And to make it even stronger, my father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hands. I and the father are one. That is your and my security right there. 
all the Father gives to me, they hear his voice. They all follow him. No one takes them from his hands, and they're also in the hands of God, and no one snatches them out of the Father's hands. And he and the Father, they work together. They're perfectly in unison. They are one. Isn't that awesome? That, that is why we believe. That is why we receive. That is why we understand. That is why we do good works. That is why we submit ourselves to others, even when they hurt us and forsake us and do wicked things against us, because that's what he does. And he's in us, and he'll cause us to be like that. And when we don't do that, he'll convict us and make us want to be like that, right? And he'll perfect us until the day of Christ, until we're clothed in white, like he says, and married to the Lamb, like he says in Revelation 19. And then, like I said, in 1 Corinthians 15, he gives all things back to the Father. That, that is his choosing. That's his, I mean, when you talk about choosing, predestination, election, all those things, this is what we're talking about. It's, it's huge. It's just the plan of God. And, 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 what's, and he takes our little, in, in one sense, insignificant lives, and he just places us in that love and in that plan, and then and, and wraps us up in him and causes us to, to be a part of his plan. And at the same time, we're completely significant to him. His thoughts on us, if you added all of them up, outnumber the sand on earth, and we're very purposeful, or his, his love in us is very purposeful, and he loves us very much, but we are just love gifts given to his son, and, and his son gives us back to the father. And the father gives us back to the son. And the son gives all things to the father. And, and we're wrapped up in that as children of God. And that, that is so wonderful. And that's just what gives you that just assurance and joy, even, even as you fight your sin, right? Even as things around you fall apart, even as you walk through trial and distress and trouble and persecution, you step back at this and you look at his plan and you go, no matter what you think, all things will work for good. Because he loves you and he's in you and he will cause that. And you just trust him. And you, you can even, like James says, rejoice in the middle of the trial because you know these things. And you know his hands are great and his, his love is, is perfect and he will do his will. Isn't that awesome? Praise God, you got double dipped. Double dipped? <laughs> Let's pray. <laughs>